So, Bob, people keep sending in questions for you and me to answer on the podcast. What do you say? We read those questions and answer them. Let's read them and then answer them. Let's not do it in the reverse order. Well, yeah, that would be weird. So this is the Psychology in Seattle podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Kirk Honda. I'm a therapist and a professor. Who are you, Bob? I am your friend from graduate school and a therapist in practice here in Seattle as well. So this first question is from upper tier patron Kathleen. She asks, what is your criteria for a close friend and are your friends mostly male or female? So let's take let's take this last part first, which is are most of your close friends or most of your friends male or female, Bob? Um, oh, I'd say it's pretty it's probably like 60, 40 men, women. I, uh, yeah, I'd say that's probably, well, maybe 70, 30. I don't know, somewhere in there. What about I'd like, say most, most of my friends are, are male, but most of my friends are in couples, and I'm friends with both people in the couple. Right, I'd say the same. What mm. about for close friends, like best friends throughout your life? I've had a couple of close, really close women friends, but I'd say most of my best friends have been men. Yeah, I'd say the you same. Too. Yeah. yeah. The When I started this podcast almost 12 years ago, by the way, we're having a 12th year anniversary live show on YouTube. Wow. August 8th. It's gonna Congratulations. Be, it's going to be 12 hours straight of YouTube live. So around the world, come join us. Uh, but when I started the podcast 12 years ago, I started it with one of my best friends, Lita. I mm-hmm. had been... Friends with her in earnest since high school, but we go back to preschool together, actually. And so uh, people would sometimes ask me, you know, how, how, did, how did you decide what to do with the, you know, with the podcast in the beginning? And I always just say, well, I first went to Bob, who is one of my best friends, and thought, well, we're two therapists, so that would work out. And then Bob uh, turned me down. He rejected me. Uh, and uh, then... <laughs> Because from what I understand, nervousness in, in general, and or self-worth issues or something. Both of those. <laughs> and then I said, okay, well, let's go down my list of other best friends. And Umberto and Lita are two of my other best friends. And I said, hey, you want to do a podcast together? We, I remember we were at a show at the Tractor Tavern in, in Ballard. Nice. And I was like, hey, Lita. Well, f- I said two things. I said, Lita, do you want to be in a band and play keyboard and two you want to start a podcast? And she was like, yeah, that sounds fun. Anyway, but so yeah, I would say most of my closest friends have been men, but I've had some pretty significant female best friends in my life. But in terms of criteria for a close friend, what are your criteria, Bob, if you had one? I'd say height. (laughs) 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 One criterion? Um I don't know. Um, I value, like with you, I value the depth of our friendship, but I really value that you and me have a good time together. We have a lot of fun together. Yeah. So they're both important to me. Um, uh, You know, I'm a little surprised I'm going to say this, and I might change my mind later, but I think the fact that we have fun together is the thing that really matters the most to me. Yeah. What occurs to me is I know that I can invite you to anything and you'll have a good time and you'll you'll put your heart 
into it. Mm. That time we played Whirly Ball. If you're not familiar oh. with Whirly Ball, it's this thing in Seattle, and I don't know if they have it other places, but it's it's bumper cars. So imagine you're at a carnival, you're you're in bumper cars, but then you have these scoopers that you you scoop up a ball and you try to throw it, kind of like the game that is played by the Aztecs or the Maya lacrosse. Uh, yeah, you're playing. It's sort of like. Or like highlight. There's a Mexican game. Oh, highlight, right? Yeah, and you're trying to you're trying to whip this ball at this uh, this sort of goal that's really high up, and it's really hard to hit. It's a very difficult thing to do, and you're trying to do that while people are bumping into you, and you're trying to pass the ball, and it's very chaotic and crazy, and. I just rem- I just remember inviting you to that, and you just you know I just knew that you would have a good time. You just had a blast. That was a riot. It was yeah. really fun. Uh, I I give this a little bit of thought for patron Kathleen here, and the first thing that popped into mind as far as criteria for a friend is that people aren't mean. I I, I don't like people who hurt other people's feelings, and it's kind of a frequent thing that I observe in other people. People who like to make fun of other people, and I'm sure it's because they're insecure or they have some traumas or they were treated mean growing up or something. But in my personal life, I I really react strongly to people who are mean. And I I have social acquaintances who will do that sometimes, and it's an instant turnoff to me. Like, if I see that kind of behavior, I in my head, it's very easy for me to just be like okay i'm done with that person like that is totally uncalled for and if i'm already seeing mean behavior then we're done Uh, a sort of classic example of this for me is or i don't know in my mind classic is umberto and i were in a band together with some other guys and this other band mate of ours was really mean to umberto and I, I didn't know this other – they knew each other really well. And so they they were more free with each other. And I saw this fella being mean to Umberto. And I thought, oh, boy, that is totally uncool, uncalled for. I'm done. I'm done. I'm done with everything involved in this because I got better things to do. You know, you live life once. I don't want to have to endure that kind of behavior. And I know – well enough to know that you can't really change that in someone's behavior. You're as a friend, you're not going to be able to intervene <laughs> or something. Although I will say that one of my friends who would do this, I this was last year, a couple years ago. I decided I was going to actually have a conversation with him, but I didn't. Instead, I just sort of exploded on him in one moment because he was he was making fun of me in in the very he would do this thing where he would he he would um he would say oh this kind of sounds like such and such band from the 70s and i'd say huh i don't know that band he would do this frequently and then he would very quickly follow it up with like you don't know such and such band and one like you know what you know. What's the big deal? Two, I know a lot about music compared to the average person. So mm-hmm. if I don't know something, it's not 
strange. Do you know it, it? It's not like not knowing who Led Zeppelin is or something. It's it would be some obscure band that. And then he would just proceed to lay into me about like, how do you not know? I mean, you call yourself a, a music aficionado. You don't know this man. And, I, you know, I would just sort of, yeah, well, what are you going to do? And then eventually after, I don't know, the 50th time it happened, I just exploded. I was just like, dude, you do this all the time. Like, just stop it. What is your point that I don't know something? Like, let it go. If you want to in- inform me about a band, go for it. But don't put me down because I don't know something. I know what I know. What am I supposed to do? Go home and study shit just in, in the off chance that you bring something up? Like, I just went off on him. Mm. And he stopped. And we stayed friends. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> but usually I just sort of slink my way, you know, mm-hmm. slink s- slowly away from people like that. I'm just like, oh, boy. So I guess maybe I should give people a, more of a chance in this yeah, way. I don't know about that. I mean, like, what are you, you're not on this earth to, like, be friends with everybody. You're on this earth for some other reason. And these people, they're to augment your life or to um, compliment it or um, to give it meaning or joy. So, you know, there's lots of people on the planet if you don't like one. Yeah. I think your friend got lucky that you were willing to do that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I mean, I guess I just really valued his friendship enough. Maybe that's that's what it comes down to. Yeah. Um, you know, he might have needed the container, too, just thinking psychologically for a sec. Yeah. What do you mean? I When I was uh, young, I, um, I was interviewing for this job as a nanny. I was going to be this kid's nanny, and his parents were divorcing, and he was 10 years old, and his mom needed child care because um, she was raising him single, and I was going to live in their house and look after him. And so we were getting to know each other, and he was doing this comparing thing, you know, where, like, um, uh, uh, my bike's better than yours kind of thing. We went for a bike ride once, and, you know, I, I have this, and that's better than yours or whatever, and... um uh, I he I don't know what that was about. It's just some kind of insecurity or something. And I said to him, I I like it better when you know um, we aren't competing over you know who has the best thing. And I didn't yell at him and I didn't give him a hard time. But I just said I like it better when, which actually is pretty smooth. Um, and that seemed to be enough because he he settled. I think he needed somebody to say eh, I don't really dig on that. That's not cool. And I think that helped him feel a little bit safer and more secure. When you were how old did you do that? I was 25. Oh. 23. Okay. He was 10. For some reason, I thought it was like you were 12 or something, but... Oh, no, I don't have that kind of sophistication. Yeah, I was going to say, that's so sophisticated for... But even 25, that's pretty sophisticated. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's a better approach. It was just like, hey, so I really like it when you do this instead. (laughs) Oh, no, I wasn't saying it was better than yours. Uh, or comparing... I was saying that your friend needed a container and you supplied one. And my guess is that in your efforts to um, put some limits around his behavior, he felt safer. I, I'm guessing. I don't know if that's true or not, but yeah, I think that could be true. I think that I'm such a, I don't know. I, 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 I don't know. I, I don't know what you think about me, but I, I think of myself as at least mostly conflict avoidant. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not afraid to do some things, but... I'd rather avoid than otherwise. And so I th- well, I always assume that if someone's being abrasive with me, 
for me to be abrasive back and say, knock it off, would just be way too much. But I think for some people, they are used to being abrasive. Yeah. Maybe people not from Seattle as, <laughs> as well. Maybe. And, and so they don't mind if you just say, hey, knock that off. It annoys me when you do X, Y, and Z. Right. So maybe that's a lesson to be learned as well. About Were they from Philadelphia? <laughs> they thrive on a certain amount of hostility in Philadelphia. <laughs> <laughs> Can you do a Philadelphia accent? What, what does a Philadelphia accent sound like? Oh, um, no, I can't do it unless I've been drinking. Uh, I've worked really hard to get rid of it. Um, isn't, it like, isn't there a lot of oys in there somewhere? No. Oh. No. Would it sound like New York to me? No, it might sound like New York to you because they're similar, but Philly has its own kind of thing. Um, What's a phrase of, that Philly people say that's something about a cheesesteak or a get out of my face or... Jeez, I haven't or, lived there in a while. Or, uh, I don't know a catchphrase. You know, who, old Bruce Willis movies, he sounds like a kid from Philly. He's from Jersey, so... Oh. Uh, yeah. Interesting. Another thing that I thought of, patron Kathleen, is uh, that I, I want to have something in common with my mm-hmm. friends. Um, you know, some acquaintances of mine who I am friends with, friendly with, we will, you know, at a party or something, we'll be talking. Somehow it's, it's them and I just having a conversation, and I find that we have very little to talk about. <laughs> <laughs> or I find myself going along with what they want to talk about when I just have no interest in having that conversation. <laughs> it's it's no fault to theirs. I mean, if anything, they're doing their best to try to keep things going. But I find myself just like completely just after a couple of minutes or, I don't know, 10 minutes, I'm just thinking, okay, how do I extract myself from <laughs> This conversation. Whereas there are other friends of mine, people like you and other people I can think of off the top of my head, who we would just talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and never run out of things to say. Yeah, There would just never be that moment of get me out of this conversation yeah. because of things that you just have in common, whether it's psychology or football or politics or whatever, video games, whatever it is, you just have a lot of things to say. I I have a f- friend, who, you know, whenever we get together and we just talk about football and fantasy football, like there's just so many things to talk about. <laughs> and, and by the way, Bob, I think I've invited you to be in my you fantasy have. football. Th- yeah, yeah. So, so f- when I, I'm starting a fantasy football league, uh, this year, and so uh, will you join me? Yeah, yeah, I'll be in it. I, do, I don't know if we're going to have a season, but I guess we'll see, right? Yeah, I think we yeah. will. I think yeah. I, one way or the other, I, I think there's mm-hmm. a pretty good chance. Um, so, yeah, I think that's probably it. I, I had a hard time coming up with a long list. You'd think there'd be a long list, but for me, it's, like you said, being able to have fun together, and for me also, it's people who aren't mean and yeah. don't take digs at people yeah. and then having something in common. Cause there's a lot of different kinds of people in the world. 
yeah. people who are interested in different kinds of things. And I find that uh, I find a sharp contrast in my enjoyment <laughs> of those kinds of conversations. Anyway, anonymous patron from Cali, he writes, I am a recent master's grad now getting my doctorate in MFD, marriage and family therapy, but I've been pretty bummed with job prospects, low pay and settling for a job being a behaviorist. So just chiming in, I'm not quite sure what a behaviorist means, I but I, I think what it means is someone who shapes clients' behaviors. I think it's often associated with, with teens or kids, kids with behavior issues. They people who try to change the behavior, they'll often label themselves as a behaviorist because it sounds more practical, I think. That's just me taking a guess at that. Whereas if you just called yourself a therapist, people would be like, well, what, are you just going to talk about their feelings? Like, we don't want that kind of service. We need someone to change this kid's behavior, make them stop getting up out of the desk and wandering around the halls or yelling at the at the teacher you know we need someone to shape behavior so i think that's what that's what he's doing so low pay and settling for a job being a behaviorist and again Mm -hmm. just chiming in with that one is that marriage and family therapists were trained to do a lot of different things there's a lot of different kinds of jobs from just being an individual therapist like most of my clients are individuals. Well, I'd say half and half, you know, half couples, half individuals. So you could you could just treat individuals. You could just treat couples. You could just treat families. You could just do families with teenagers. You could just do families with kids. You could work with teenagers alone, kids alone, young children. You could be a behaviorist. There's just a lot of different kinds. You could do group therapy. There's just a lot of different things. And f- for for some marriage and family therapists, they although they're not super interested in one of those things, they'll get a job in one of those things because there's a high demand for that kind of job. Like there's a lot of people who are in our field who would love to hang a shingle and be, be in private practice. And, but there's a, and there's a lot of jobs where it's very stressful. And I'm guessing being a behaviorist has a lot of stress. I, I don't know what his job is like specifically, but I've worked in jobs like that before where you're working with kids with quote unquote behavioral issues, very stressful work, very, very stressful. You feel responsible to change the kid's behavior. It's very hard to do that. You might have a lot of other systems at play that are getting in your way, the school, the the parents, trauma, uh, the kid's mental health issues. And it's, it's all on you. And if the kid doesn't get better or even gets worse, you you just you walk away from y- your shift and you just feel like a failure. It's just it's a very very difficult job to do. Anyway, so anonymous patron from Cali, he said that he you know he graduated with his master's and he's getting his doctorate. He's low pay, settling for a job as a behaviorist. Can't help but feel like I've chosen the harder path when my friends and family have freedom six-figure salaries, job satisfaction with just a bachelor's degree. I love talk therapy, but sometimes it doesn't feel like enough. I feel this career is so underappreciated and have low expectations for my success. Maybe you can relate or give advice. Bob, what do you say to anonymous patron? 
You emailed me this question yesterday, and I'd been thinking about it a little bit. Um, and I thought, I don't, I, I know what he's talking about. At least I went through my own version of what he's talking about in my early career. Um, I was working in an agency, and the pay was, you know, not that, <laughs> the pay was poor, and the demands were high, and the bureaucracy was at best cumbersome and at worst unethical and crappy um and antagonistic to your work yes yes that's a good way to put it very much the tail wagged the dog uh in public mental health clinic uh or at least when i was there and um i uh, i probably said this on the podcast before very soon into it i became aware of the jaded attitude of uh, my colleagues and I did not want to feel that way. They felt stuck. They were underpaid. They were overworked. Um, and you know how people can get kind of resentful and a bit uh, righteous and indignant about their suffering? Well, I know that I can do that. And there's a possibility for me to become that. And I realized I didn't want to do that. So I saw it as this fair exchange wherein I was getting experience. I was getting hours towards licensure. I was getting supervision. I actually got some very good supervision um, for part of my time there. And in exchange, um, I was providing the best uh, service I could to my clients and surviving the rest of it and just seeing it as this game. And I actually got good at playing the paperwork game, how to do the paperwork so that it was minimally invasive on therapy and um and that was pretty successful until one day <laughs> i had been gone a week i was on vacation and i came back i walk in i sit down at our staff meeting it was a wednesday i sat down at our staff meeting and i was listening to the latest version of the same bureaucratic bureaucratic bullshit that you know we had to do with and i thought i wonder if i could quit and the idea filled me with just a tremendous joy, just tremendous joy. And I realized I, mean, I can't act on this. I need to give it a chance to settle. So I let it sit for 24 hours. <laughs> and then I, I walked in the next day and I gave my two weeks notice and I was out of there two weeks later. And I had a very small private practice on the side. I think I was booking maybe between four and eight hours a week, usually closer to four. And I had a little bit of savings, not much. And I had some vacation time, not much. And I figured I got about six weeks worth of money here. I live pretty cheap. And it's true. Back then, I lived very cheap. Um, and I'm probably going to have to get a job delivering pizza. And you know what? That was okay with me. And the truth of the matter is, is I never I never actually got a job. I just kept doing this. And I was lucky. I don't think this happens to everybody. But um, through some networking, um, I had a steady flow of clients that made it so that I could survive and um, on my practice alone. And so I never actually got a job. Um, so I was thinking about this person's question yesterday. And I was thinking about the satisfaction I have with how things went. And I suspect that it might be the kind of thing that a person thinks about when they're on the beginning end of their career. And that as one establishes, it's a, perhaps a question that ends up answering itself. And um, uh, I'm actually quite satisfied with the work that I'm doing, the way that I'm doing it, the independence and freedom that I have to do it the way I see fit, the flexibility in my schedule, the flexibility in pursuing the kinds of training. And I'm like, I'm like the king of go get training. Um, the kinds of training that I wanted to pursue and learn. 
and um, the um, income that I make. I feel a little bit bad in that in some ways, when I think about it, I think, am I standing on the backs of the poor? Because the folks that use community mental health are usually folks that don't have a lot of money or don't have any money and are, um, you know, um, disabled. And um, that's where I cut my teeth. And I don't know what the answer to that is. I feel okay. I feel like um, I do my best to be ethical and to do something to relieve suffering in the world. And... um it gives me a sense of purpose and meaning. I don't think there's anything wrong with working in community mental health. I think it's hard to survive it and um, feel okay, like um, um, avoid bitterness. I think it can be done, um, but I don't think it could have been done by me. Yeah. How far along were you, were you after graduation that you quit? Five years. Five years. Five years. Yeah. Yeah, that's a long time. Yeah. 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 This is, I heard someone say recently in a work meeting that they question people who go into private practice and they, they question that person's ethics or morals or something. And therapists are, uh, you know, at, you know, at, at our best, we're really good at questioning our own impulses and looking at how, oppression and marginalization play a role mm. in mm-hmm. our work and our lives and to reject community mental health because it's hard work could be a result of our classism and our could. greed and participate or even racism for that matter you know these aren't the kind of clients that i envisioned myself working with and those are all worthy questions but that's micro compared to the macro it's not our fault that job satisfaction it's fact job satisfaction compared private pay as opposed to community mental health job satisfaction is clearly different uh, pay is clearly different uh, freedom and the ability to actually treat your clients the way they need to be treated is clearly different and that is undebatable. Every I don't know anyone who would disagree with that statement. And so for us, how are we... So we're just supposed to deal with that. We're just supposed to say, well, in order to be moral and ethical, I just have to put up with terrible pay, terrible work conditions, overwork, underappreciation, lack of resources... Now, the solution, as I always say, is we need more tax dollars to be spent on community mental health. That would solve the problem. You would be able to work at a community mental health. Like, let's say you and I, like you, let's say you and I, for whatever reason, decide to go back to community mental health. You and I have a collective 50 years of experience behind us. We do. We, we would get paid collectively less than $100,000 a year. And in Seattle, the maybe like $105,000 a year or something. Really? A full-time therapist in community mental health can make that much money? Oh, Collect- make, collectively. You're saying you and me together, we'd make about a hundred grand. Yeah. We'd both, we'd, you know, yeah. I'd get paid 50000 a year at, at best, yeah. maybe far less. And 
And in Seattle, for those who live outside Seattle, they may be like, well, that's a lot of money. It's actually not a lot of money. There are, uh, like a typical rent in Seattle is $3,000 or something. A typical house price in Seattle is uh, close to a million. We're talking like $700,000 for a home in Seattle is really cheap. And you're talking about a fixer-upper that's on the outskirts. (laughs) So, So... the issue here is that we don't have tax dollars. And why don't we have tax dollars? Because no one cares. Politicians don't care. Voters don't care. And then we, as people who dedicate our lives to trying to make the world a better place, when we could have done a lot of different other sorts of jobs, it could have, like, as anonymous patron from Cali is lamenting, with, with just a bachelor's degree, a six-figure salary, mm-hmm. job satisfaction— mm-hmm and freedom in their life, benefits, and an upward mobility. We could have decided to do that, but we didn't. And so we're supposed to be the ones who suffer because society has deemed these people irrelevant, these clients irrelevant, and that mental health is irrelevant. And so when I hear people questioning people who go into private practice, and by the way, the colleagues that were dogging on people going into private practice are in private practice. (laughs) And I just wow. wanted to I just Seriously? wanted Yeah, I just wanted to say wow. to them so you're in private practice and you're denigrating students who want to go into private practice. So why aren't you working in community mental health? <laughs> like they're like, well, I question people who are going in, you know. I don't know the circumstances. I was a little triggered. I didn't investigate. Maybe there's a mm. whole other story behind that. Who knows? Mm. I was going mm. to say that because God knows who's listening. But, <laughs> ah. <laughs> <laughs> but, but I've heard that. I've heard. I've maybe not recently, but I've, I've definitely heard people say that it's a it's a problem we have when individuals decide to go into private practice, and I, and and we got to pay our bills. Uh, earning $50,000 a year in Seattle is just not going to work, particularly if you're the primary breadwinner. I mean, that you're just, you're not, you're going to be on food stamps with, with that salary, with a master's degree. <laughs> and so, uh, so anyway. the Master's degree, which is, uh, I don't know about you, but it was very expensive. I right. had a lot of debt. Right. Exactly. Yeah. You're definitely not going to be paying off your debt. Um yeah, I mean, similar to you, Bob, when I graduated with my master's, I was working community mental health. I was also teaching on the side. I was also private practicing on the side, and I was working 70 hours a week. Yeah, and you I were was, working, man. Yeah, and I was, on my on my community mental health salary, I was, it was $13 an hour, and you were jealous of me. I was. Eleven forty an hour when I got out of graduate school. That's what they offered me. Yeah, I was making more money as a case manager with a bachelor's degree um, two years before that. Yeah, I think minimum wage in Seattle is higher than thirteen dollars an hour right now. It's fifteen. So people are like, well, but you know that was nineteen ninety seven. Well, I looked it up. That's twenty one dollars an hour in today's money. Mm. That's so, forty two grand a year. That's what that translates to. Yeah, mm. long stressful days. Top ramen for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. Living in my crappy small apartment that didn't have a shower. <laughs> my car had three hundred thousand miles on it. Um, do you remember when I couldn't afford to? Ins- I, my starter went out, and I couldn't. And Todd helped me install oh, it. 
I remember that. I sat in your living room, watched you guys. Yeah. 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 And I think we failed in the end. I think it yeah, didn't. Did. Act- yeah. yeah. We, I yeah. still had to take it in. But I found this guy on Aurora who would install it for like $100. And I remember just saying, okay, well, I guess that's better than $500, however right. much it was going to cost. No vacations. And then, you, know, I'm, you were, I was, I was 28 when I got out of graduate school and didn't understand anything about um, retirement. And now I'm 53. And I, I have uh, an understanding that um, if I don't look out for me, ain't nobody going to do it. I didn't understand that back then. That's like the privilege of youth, you know, in immortality. But, but can you imagine making 42 grand a year and thinking about uh, what do I do to protect myself when I'm old, if I can't work or if I don't want to anymore? Right. Yeah. Holy shit, man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, right. Other things that I've listed here of my, you know, those poor times was no vacations. I didn't have a vacation yeah. for the first 10 years of my career, I think. Mm-hmm. I don't know, maybe not that long, but it was a long time. Uh, no cable TV. I I had a r- crappy 13-inch color TV on a stand. Do you remember that thing? With, I do. With a VCR from the 80s. I remember that. <laughs> Um, I built my own furniture out of two by fours and plywood. I remember that well. <laughs> because I couldn't afford furniture. I cut my own hair, et, et cetera, uh-huh. et cetera. Yeah. And, and I, I had a master's degree. So anonymous Patreon Kelly, I get it. You know, yep. it, it's, it sucks. And it, you're not wrong. Huh? Yeah. It's not what you envisioned, but there is a future. If you stick it out, you're getting your doctorate. That's going to open some doors. Um, and, but here's the thing, cause I know a lot of people will email me about this. You said anonymous patron that you settled for a job as a behaviorist. Now, some people would love to be a behaviorist. Right? There's some behaviorists out there and I might've even characterized the whole job incorrectly earlier. I don't know. Cause that's just not really my area in terms of the nomenclature, but, but you said you settled for a job. It's not the job that you were looking for. It's not your dream job. Well, you're at the beginning of your career, as Bob is saying, and set your sights on it. Keep your eye on the ball. Uh, check in with yourself. Make a plan. Take control of your career. The, the thing about this field in psychotherapy and psychology in general is that you don't just, like, if you become an aeronautical engineer, you go to Boeing, you go to Lockheed, you go to Airbus, there's, there's jobs, there's there's this very common jobs that you sign up for. If you become a IT person, you become a pro, uh, you know, project manager for Google or Facebook or you know, there's there's these jobs that are just out there. But when it comes to psychotherapy and psychology, there's so much variability and so many options and so many configurations, like. For for me, I have a private practice where I see clients. I'm a I'm a private supervisor where I super people hire me to supervise. I'm an author. I'm a professor. I'm a university administrator. I'm a podcaster. I'm a YouTuber. I'm a business owner trying to market everything. So mm-hmm. I'm I'm doing marketing. Mm-hmm. Um. I am involved in continuing education. I'm involved. There's just so many different things that I do that, and a lot of people, by the time they get to a certain point in their career, that's, 
that's how they kind of like it, you know, sort of a cobbled together. And so you really have to have a plan. You really have to lean into it. And so people out there, including anonymous patron from California, make a plan and network and start heading in the direction that you want to go in. Uh, a lot of you know that we do the Dungeons and Dragons therapy podcasts with Adam Johns and Adam Davis. Those guys got a master's degree at Antioch. They were students of mine, and they graduated, and they started their careers as clinicians, and they didn't want to just do that. They wanted to do something more. They wanted to use games like Dungeons and Dragons to help people because that was what they were interested in. And so they, over years and years, started cobbling together, networking a lot, spending a lot of extra time, and fast forward seven years, and now they're both executive directors of Game to Grow, which is arguably the most largest and most successful organization that uses Dungeons and Dragons in therapy, and they have several employees and many donors and uh you know i'm i'm pretty sure in another 10 years there will there will be game to grow offices all over the planet because they're already starting to you know uh, proliferate around the united states and around the world and they just had a master's degree and were working in community mental health and they said i have a vision I want to do this other thing. Now, not everyone is like that. Not everyone is going to start their own nonprofit. But but private practice, trainings, going back to school, uh, giving trainings, um, all that kind of stuff is involved in cobbling together a job that uh, that is one that you want. And I'll tell you, I've trained hundreds of people in this field. And I see a wide variety of success in being able to go after job satisfaction. There are people who go for it. And because everyone's, I find that everyone says the same thing, but not everyone does the same thing. So I work with a lot of postgrads who are just like, okay, I don't like working at the job I'm in right now. I want to change things. And so we talk about different strategies, you know, okay, well, maybe look into this or I'll connect you with this person. Maybe you should talk with that person, maybe, you know. And what I find is that there are people who go for it and they're almost obsessed. I, I feel like I've been that way since the beginning of my career. I've been obsessed with job satisfaction. <laughs> I've just been obsessed with you know, I, I'm going to live this life once and I don't want to waste my time. I want to do something that I want to do and I'm going to, I'm going to make it happen. And I, I know colleagues and students and trainees that I've worked with who are like that too. They're just obsessed with like, okay, this is where I'm at right now, but this is not where I want to be. So what am I going to do about it? Okay. I'm going to do this. I'm going to, and, and 99% of what they try doesn't work, but that 1% that does pays off. And then there's this other class of graduate that I work with who says they want to do all those things, but they don't for one reason or another. And there's a lot of reasons why one wouldn't do some of those things. They don't have the time. But really, the people that I work with who make it work, they don't have the time either. It's just on their brain all the time, you know? It's not like I had time to start a podcast when I started this podcast, or really throughout the span of this podcast. I've had 
a full-time job at the university and a part-time job in my private practice. So where was the time? Um, you know, when you want something bad enough, you make the time, even if it's just an hour here and there. Um, essentially, I, what I always say is, because people sometimes say, like, how do you get the time? I just say, I don't watch a lot of TV. <laughs> <laughs> the average American watches something like three or four hours of TV a day. And I wow. want to watch TV. There's so many old movies. I'm getting into watching old movies again, like uh, Kira Kosawa movies and other kinds of things, uh, Miyazaki movies. But anyway, my point is, is that go for it, make a plan, and network and make it happen. Uh, go talk to your professors. Your professors probably have a lot of connections, a lot of people they can connect you with. Um, when people come to me and say, like I, I had a student come to me about, I don't know, seven years ago or something, and she she was a postgrad. She was someone, a student of mine from the past, and she didn't like where she was at in her career. And she was almost, she almost was about to quit. She's like, maybe I should just go back to doing what I was doing before. And I said, well, let's, let's have a meeting. Let's sit down and talk about it. And we talked about it. And fast forward three or four years, and she cobbled together a career that she loved, uh, where she was making you know, five times as much money. She was full-time professor at, at Antioch at that, by that point. And she, she was just like, oh, my God. I just I love my career now. Now, I didn't do that. I helped her a little bit, but it was her. You know? She networked with me, and then I gave her uh, some opportunities, and she went with it. Anyway, any final words on that, Bob, before we take a break? No, I think that's all great. All right. Well, then let's take a break. When we get back, let's answer some more emails. What do you say, Bob? Yes. All right. We're back from the break. If you haven't become a patron of the podcast yet, please do so now. That's how we know you like what we do. And it also means that we don't have to go back to work in community mental health. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> hey, so you just hit a milestone. I got an email the other day, and you're giving away another scholarship. That's right. So we have another scholarship, $2,000, that we're going to be giving away. And so if uh, we, so the criteria are pretty wide, but we generally give it to people who are in graduate school, master's or doctoral, in mental health in some capacity. And... They need the money. They can't just be, like, doing something great. They, have, they actually have to demonstrate need. And we've given a, away three scholarships already, and we have a system of trying to determine, you know, like, peop, like the last person we gave some scholarship. No, actually, we've given four scholarships. Yeah, four. Um, but uh, someone was from a family that had basically disowned them and didn't have a lot of money to begin with. And so she was completely on her own. She didn't have a spouse to help her, that kind of thing. So that's one thing is need. The other thing is, is have you done good work for society already? And do you have plans to make a positive difference in the world in the future? So those are the three things, that you need it, that you've done great work, and that you plan to do great work. So... Uh, think about that before you apply, because for some people they're like, well, I'm a high school student and I, I really want, you know, I want to go to college. And so can I, can I apply for this money? 
yeah, you can you can apply, but the chance that you're going to rival someone who's 25 years old who has been volunteering with AmeriCorps and uh, or working for AmeriCorps and has developed a program to help homeless people with their clothes and their mental health or whatever it is that people do, you know, that, that uh, the chance that you're going to rival with that, um, you know, isn't very high. So uh, feel free to apply, but just understand that we it, it tends to go towards someone who's currently in training uh, and who has done wonderful work already. And we also are looking for people from marginalized groups as well, whether it's race or um, LGBTQIA plus people, people from countries that two thousand dollars will go a long way. We've had some people applying from the Philippines, for example, and two thousand dollars will go a long way over there. Um, and so, uh, and the need is quite can be quite high in in, in some communities, obviously in the United States as well. So. Um, so what also, strikes me is that even if a person applies and doesn't get the scholarship, that's not effort wasted or lost. You have to yeah. turn over a hundred stones before you find the one. You got to kiss a lot of frogs before you find the prince, you know, or whatever, however you want to put it. There's there's merit in the doing. You're teaching your brain to take action. Yeah. And the application isn't that hard to fill out. So, it, oh, you know, nice. it's because some, ap- some applications for scholarships are like, really long papers. You know, this is just a form you fill out yeah. on the website. Having said that, if you're a serious candidate, make sure you fill it out completely, that you don't just briefly fill it out, because if it's brief, it's maybe doesn't explain well enough what's going on for you. The other thing you think is... I'll win it? I could win it, right? <laughs> yeah. Um, the other thing is that we have an art grant. So a $1,000 art grant that we're going to start offering... I don't know if we've announced that yet, but huh. we're going to take proposals for an art project that someone can submit, and then we will grant that person $1,000 to complete that art grant. Wow. And again, what we're looking for are probably social justice art-oriented, you know, social justice-oriented art projects, because I'm I'm just guessing that the judges here at Psychology in Seattle will... Do you want to participate in any of this process, by the way, Bob? Do you want to do yeah. uh, as part of the team? Yeah, it's, I'd it's, love to actually review scholarship apps. Oh, okay. Well, yeah. and, and art grant stuff, too. You can be part well, of that. Well, uh, yeah, I guess I could be. I don't know anything about art or that, but I know a little bit about psychology shit. So, yeah. Yes, I'd love to. That would be great. Thank and you. And the art grant was actually proposed by a patron, patron Bronwyn, as many people know her, on the Facebook fan page, by the way. If, if you haven't been on the Facebook fan page, I recommend going there. It's a good place to network with other listeners and know about these kinds of things. And uh, a while ago, she was like, you know, for your next big thing, you should do an art grant. And uh, so, yeah. <laughs> she might also be a judge. All right. Upper tier patron Kathleen asks, what types uh what type of categories do you think the majority of your listeners fall into? So I have a very detailed answer to this, Bob, but do you have a guess? Not to- even a guess. You don't have a guess at all. Uh human. <laughs> <laughs> 
people that are probably interested in psychology and perhaps they're interested in uh, because um, uh, they're connected to somebody who has some mental health troubles or maybe they themselves have some mental health troubles or maybe they just have an interest in the human condition. I don't know. Those would be my guesses. My guesses. Yeah. So those are good guesses and they're probably right. From a survey that we sent out two years ago, I asked all the listeners to fill out a pretty detailed survey and it took me months to write the report and it's available on our website actually if you're curious i i wrote a report on all the findings it was mainly to find out about their satisfaction with various elements of the podcast but i also asked about demographics and this is just i have a paragraph that i wrote in the report that sort of summarized everything and i'll just read it the listeners represent many walks of life About half are in the mental health profession, including MHCs, MFTs, psychologists, CDPs, social workers, and psychiatrists. And the other half comprises of lay people who are interested in psychology. They live all over the world, such as Toronto, Berlin, New York, Oslo, London, Seattle, Salt Lake City, Orlando, Sydney, Paris, Tokyo, Atlanta, Detroit, Dallas, and Cape Town. Respondents range in age from 17 to 71. They identified as Caucasian, Native American, Korean, Brazilian, Indian, Swedish, Magyar? Magyar? Is is that? I don't know what that is, actually. (laughs) Or did I miswrite that? African American, Filipino, Mexican, Hapa, Haitian, Russian, Chinese, Polish, and many others. Respondents identified as cisgender female, cisgender male, non-conforming, gender-fluid, queer, and trans. They represent several sexual orientations, including bisexual, heterosexual, lesbian, gay, asexual, poly, pan, queer, straight, and exploring. Their education ranged from high school to a doctorate. Their yearly income ranged from zero to $200,000 a year. Hmm. They represent several political camps, including liberal, republican, independent, right, socialist, progressive, libertarian, and evangelical. Many suffer from disabilities, for example, autism, epilepsy, and pain, and, me- and mental illnesses, include, you know, for example, anxiety, depression, and PTSD. But a typical listener, so, that, so there's a wide range of people, is the point. Really just people from all over the world, all walks of life, all political ideas, all gender, all sexual orientation. Um, so, But about half are mental health professionals and half aren't but the typical listener the the, pretty typical profile was a respondent who was a millennial and i think millennials it's like they turned 20 around the millennium is that what millennial means (laughs) i think i think that's what millennial means is that you came of age during the year 2000 anyway like you might have graduated from high school in the year 2000. So the typical res- so that would be what you'd be like in your th- early 30s if you're a millennial. The typical respondent was a millennial, heterosexual, single, Caucasian, highly educated, politically left, cisgender, female in her 30s, who currently lives in the United States, earns about $50,000 per year and suffers from anxiety, depression or PTSD. About half the respondents work in mental health, while the other half doesn't. Um, but another, so uh, the typical listener, 
is uh, white, left, cisgender female in her 30s, lives in the United States. Um, 40% of the listeners were LGBTQIA, which is far higher than, than the, you know, the national average or the world average. And yeah, so that is that. Nice. (laughs) Um, Yeah. Uh, all right. Patron Kathleen also writes, asks, do you or Bob keep a journal? Do you keep a journal, Bob? I do not. Have you ever? I know. Uh, not seriously. Not with any length of time. No. So you did briefly, and then what? Just threw it away. Yeah. Yeah. Journal. Then not journal. Then journal. Then not journal. I probably haven't journaled anything in I don't know, probably twenty years. But you have it, so you have. You can. I do. I have it. a journal. It's. I can dig it out of my attic if I wanted to. Yes. So twenty years ago. Twenty plus years ago. Yeah. Wow. Have you yeah. read it recently? No, I never go in my attic. <laughs> um, yeah, I interesting. Keep, I keep. I've I've kept a journal since I was thirteen, and this podcast. As so, as I was thinking about this question, because I could go on and on about my journal. It's I, I'm of anyone I know. I keep the most elaborate journal <laughs> of anyone um, I know. Too. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it sort of ebbs and flows that currently I haven't been contributing to my journal much, but there are times in my life when I'm writing it every day. And to some extent, this podcast is an extension of that compulsion to journal. Mm -hmm. Uh, I remember noticing that when I first started it, there's something journalistic about not like to be a journalist, but Mm -hmm. journal like to podcast in that, I am putting something down permanently that I can go back and listen to to reflect on where I was and and where I've been. I, I, I consider journaling to be kind of an obsession with the passage of time mm. because early in my life, when I was a teenager, I just thought, isn't it so weird that 30 years from now, I'll be the same person i'll be me but i'll be different and i'll be curious who i was when i was 13 or 17 or 27 and to have an insider view into me into what i was thinking and feeling and the way i process things would give me just at least data so that i could know where i was in space and time at that point. So for now, like if I pulled out my journal and read it, it, it I don't know what it does. It does something deep in me that it gives me the sense of like, this is who you are. This is where you were. You know, because some things never change. I can read journal entries from when I was 17 and, and say, oh my God, I would have, I could, I feel the same way today. <laughs> There's like, that has not changed at all. But other things change quite a bit. And the other thing that sort of freaks me out about the passage of time is that if I forget it happened, it almost makes time meaningless or something. Like, for me, 
one of the worst things that could happen, not it's, it's not a terrible thing, but something I try to avoid is forgetting an entire chapter of my life. Like I don't, it, because of my journal, it doesn't happen very often. And I also, not only do I journal, but I also catalog with video and pictures and I keep track of all that and I have it all organized. And well, you tell me, Bob, do you have sort of, five-year spans in your past that you don't remember much about it because you don't have much documentation about it. And when you think about, okay, well, huh, 2002, like I, I guess I kind of remember like the broad strokes, but I really don't remember that much about that time. Do you have things like that? Yeah, man. I, I put a, a grill on Facebook the other day. We're giving away this grill that we don't use no more. And a friend of mine from uh, 1990. See, I moved here in 92. A friend, a really good friend from 96 to after graduate school. Oh, no, no. Middle of graduate school. Um, no, 94. I knew her for three and a half years or thereabouts, right? A really good friend. I used to spend a lot of time with her. She emailed me or texted or something. Anyway, she got in touch with me the other night. I hadn't spoken to her in 15 years and I hadn't hung out with her in, is that 30? No, it's 25 years. I hung out, hadn't spent time with her in 25 years, and it was lovely, but it was, as you say, just little snapshots and so much stuff that I, I know I've forgotten because I just have little snapshots. Yeah. 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 Used to drink a lot, drink a lot of Henry Weinhardt's back in those days. <laughs> the fancy stuff. <laughs> and, and that, for some reason, that really, I understand that other people, they don't care about that, and that I get yeah. that. It's like, what yeah. are you going to do? But for yeah. me, mm -hmm. I, that I have like anxiety to some extent about that kind of thing, where I forget an entire th piece of my past, and it's, and it's not just my past; it's like the past, because mm -hmm. like I've cataloged, I have videos of my grandparents when they were in their twenties, because they had a camera in the nineteen thirties, and I made sure that I got a hold of that digitally and. And I like looking at that stuff. Actually, the other day, I rewatched a, a, a digitization of a film that my grandparents made when my mom would have been like 15 years old. So this would have been this would have been around 1959 or something. And I watched the whole thing, just seeing my mom as a teenager and my grandparents as people a, around my age, and how they interacted with their friends and just everything happened. It just felt, I don't know what it is about it, but just feeling like I can hold on to those moments and know them and check in with them. It's like a little, well, Bob, so as a person, as a normal who doesn't uh, journal, hmm. if you had a crystal ball and you could look back to when you were 16 years old and just just watch you for five minutes or or see like a day in the life crammed into five minutes. Would you want to do that? Oh hell yeah, yeah, yeah. There would be so much that I don't remember that would. Um, you ever you ever like um, you know you're going about your life and then you smell something. Literally, you smell something and um, it transports you into the past. Yeah, yeah. I imagine your journal is a window back in time. Yeah, I could totally see the appeal of it. 
Yeah. So, so why the don't you think is, the, absolutely. Do, so why don't you journal then? Like, is it just like a pain in the ass or? Yeah. And I don't, I don't, I don't think about it. You know, one of the things that's easy to do is just get so focused on either the present moment now or the future that I forget um, that I'm making a past is really one way to put it. Um, it's not where I put my attention. I also think it's part of my narcissism to <laughs> uh, write things down because it's as if it matters. You know, I, I find that people who aren't on the narcissistic spectrum, um, they're, they're just like, well, I mean, who really cares? I mean, uh, I, no one cares about my life and I don't care about my life. <laughs> So an hour and five minutes before you mentioned your own narcissism, I think it might be a record. <laughs> um, Katie writes in and she says, this is, this is a long one. So, and this is a good one for you, Bob. Mm. I've been in weekly therapy for a bit over a year dealing with trust, intimacy, and attachment issues. I am fearful, dismissive attachment style. My therapist has a CBT background, but also uses schema therapy. I made it clear from the first session that I want an in-depth look at myself and that, she, and that the therapeutic relationship is very important in my healing journey, which I consider to be a long-term one. Although the therapist welcomed that and we started building a strong bond, I sense she is not as comfortable with relational and in-depth work as she thinks she is. I often feel she resorts to superficial responses and textbook responses and keeps the theory at the forefront of our meetings instead of going in depth. This has been triggering for me. I have tried to talk it over with her, but she doesn't seem to get what I'm saying. How does one know when this is a challenge to work through versus a sign that we've reached the limit of our work together? Bob, what do you think? Well, I think the way one knows is one has put in effort and discovered that the outcome isn't what one is seeking. But I don't think that patron is asking, how does one know? She's asking, how is one certain? And I think that is off the menu. There's probably going to, because what you're talking about here is what other people might consider a breakup. You know, should I stay in this relationship or not stay in this relationship? Should we break it up? There isn't a single person, I think, that's ever had absolute 100% certainty that breaking up was the right thing to do. Um, so it's fraught. And certainty probably isn't on the menu. This person, even though you're dissatisfied, is important to you. Your relationship is important to you. And you have become attached. So that's good, on the one hand. And on the other hand... Yeah, how could you possibly know for certain? I don't I don't know if anybody could tell you. Yeah, I get some version of this question about every other day, should I leave my therapist or should I not? And mm -hmm. I think that's a good answer. It's similar to Thanks. divorce that mm -hmm. well, how, how does anyone really know? It's it's often unless there's something really obvious, it's usually like, well, it's hard it's hard to know. But can you imagine the, this client being in a situation where uh, they want relational attachment-based therapy and they're bumping up against someone who either doesn't know what they're talking about or doesn't even want to do that kind of work but would say – because she says that mm -hmm. her therapist has a CBT background and also uses mm -hmm. schema therapy. 
Mm-hmm. And then she's like, I want, uh, that's great. That's fine. But I also mm-hmm. want it to be attachment based. Mm-hmm. And the therapist is like, yeah, sure. But she doesn't feel like the therapist really gets what she's agreeing to hmm. and will give her what what she wants around this style of therapy that she thinks would be very helpful for her. Can you imagine someone being in, in that situation? Oh, yeah, I can. I can totally imagine that and then how frustrating and disappointing that might be. And I wonder if that would be worth talking about. You know, like um, uh, shifting the focus from other to self. You know, focus on other. This is something that I do. I say, well, Colleen, you know, she doesn't do this enough or that enough, or she should be more blah, 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 right? And I, you know, fill in the blank about what that is. Um, um, and one of the things that's harder for me to do is actually take it to a personal attachment-oriented relational place, which is, I want something. Uh, I'm scared about something. I'm... I'm ashamed of something. I feel distant from you, um, as opposed to you aren't talking to me. Um, I'm lonely. I wonder what would happen. And uh, listen, Kirk, I'm kind of curious about what you think about this, because I think it's actually quite a lot to do. It's quite a risk. Uh, But even recognizing that I'm afraid of the risk is a really important recognition and uh, reasonable to talk about is I'm afraid to be personal with you. I'm afraid that you'll reject me and that you'll throw some CBT theory at me or that you'll say blah, 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 schema therapy at me. I'm afraid to be as open with you as I most want or need to be as opposed to you don't treat me right. Or there's something wrong with you and your uh, style of therapy. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. Um, Mm. And the way you put it, the way you modeled it was really great, great as well. Thanks. So I think the only thing I'll add to that, Mm -hmm. which I don't think it requires that for sure, but is there's a lot of different style of therapists out there. Mm -hmm. And if someone identifies as CBT, then there's a chance that they actually don't think that attachment-based therapy is good therapy. Um, it's not like they say, well, I, I like all kinds of therapy, but, you know, I'm just deciding to do CBT. There are some people who will, and take it from me, I've had these arguments with people, who they actually, they're hostile towards other kinds of therapies. Mm, they mm-hmm. think it's not evidence-based when that's mm. false. They think it's just twiddling your thumbs in therapy. They think it's indulgent or something or mm-hmm. trying to scam. They, there are CBT therapists who think attachment-based therapy is a scam. It's mm-hmm. trying to trick clients into going to long-term therapy and staying sick, as they'll say. You know mm-hmm. That to do that is to keep people sick. Mm-hmm. Now, there are scenarios where that could be applied. Like if someone came in with a phobia and you just explored their childhood then in all likelihood, that's a waste of time. Mm. If you have a phobia, there's a clear protocol. But if someone comes in with attachment issues and relational traumas and a lifetime of attachment injury, CBT can help for sure. Schema therapy can help. And what also can help is interpersonal transference-based therapy, psychodynamic Mm -hmm. therapy, Mm -hmm. attachment-oriented therapy. And it's possible, Katie, that your therapist just either one doesn't understand, which wouldn't be unheard of, 
or two, actually just thinks it's worthless. It's, she might be thinking it's in your best interest that you don't do this. There are solution, although I love solution-focused therapy, there are purists in solution-focused therapy who will absolutely say, for us to just sit here and talk about your past and your problems is keeping you in the problem. It's not going to help you. If you want to be helped, then solution-focused therapy is, is going to help you. And solution-focused therapy is not what often people think it is. People think it's like focusing on solutions, but that's actually kind of the opposite of that. You're actually, as a therapist, focusing on the fact that the client already knows the solution and that you don't provide it. But anyway, and it's a absolutely worthy mode of therapy that I use, but I don't use it all the time. I use it when it calls for it. So people out there, um, and and the other thing is, is, there's a lot of therapists out there that deny attachment-based therapy as something that's important. And so you just have to shop around. So, Katie, there's a chance that, one, you might be uh, running out, as you say, you know, a sign that you've reached the limit of your work together. There's nothing wrong with that. There's nothing wrong with saying, I got something good out of this, and I'm ready to try something else. And you can even do that while you're seeing your therapist. Just just tell your therapist, look, I like what we're doing, but I feel like there's this other part that I'm missing and there's nothing wrong with you, but I, I just want to see if other therapists might help. And is you know, I just wanted to inform you about that. Mm. A good therapist will be able to be like, cool, mm-hmm. I'm happy for you. Go for it. Um, and quote unquote, let you do that. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so... Uh, now, but the other possibility is that the th- I think as Bob was kind of getting to is that maybe if you're vulnerable and you take an I statement instead of a, a accusatory stance and just am like, well, I feel lonely, I feel distance from you, and I, I don't want to feel that, maybe that will open something up for this therapist, even if the therapist isn't... Um, normally uh, oriented that way. We have a a listener, Liza, who's been on the podcast before. She has dissociative identity disorder and a lifetime of traumas. And I think she had some bad bouts of therapy, but, and she lives in a small town as well. And she, she, she got a therapist who is actually her physician, I believe, if I remember right. And maybe a psychiatrist, but anyway, not a pure psychotherapist. And what Liza did is that she molded him to be an attachment-based therapist. (laughs) (laughs) Good for her. And told him, oh, okay, this is what I need. I need this relationship to be center focus. I need to feel like you care about me. I need a safe place to tell you about some of my feelings and impulses towards you that are really scary to me. And Mm -hmm. he, you know, bless him, decided to look up, okay, what is psychodynamic therapy? What is attachment-based therapy? What is transference-based therapy? And he's like, okay, I I think I have this story right. And he's like, okay, I will provide that. And I think it's his only client that he does this with. And Mm -hmm. it according to Liza, is incredibly 
uh, therapeutic for her. Now, I'm not mm-hmm. outing her. We did a whole episode about this. She described this whole thing in full. You can listen to that episode. It's from, I don't know, about a year ago. And there, so that was with someone that didn't even really know psychotherapy that well. That's so, amazing. Katie, maybe your therapist could be that way too. Mm-hmm. All right. This next email is from upper tier patron Kathleen. She writes, are you and Bob living the life of your dreams? Bob, are you living the life of your dreams? Mm, I don't think it's a binary question. I think it's a continuum. Um, yeah, I'd say 80%. Okay. Do you want to share what would tip you further up their percentage? No. Isn't that funny? I actually don't. <laughs> I, when is that ever true? I always say. No. I could be general. Um, I'd like um, to be happier with Colleen. Um, and I hope that doesn't sound like a criticism of her. It's not meant to be. I'd like to feel happier. Um, um, and there's certain parts of um, my world and my relationship with her that I have a tremendous amount of shame and fear. And that gums me up. So I'd, I'd like that to be different. I have uh, one goal, uh, one, I'm thinking about something else now, one goal that I have not been able to meet or achieve. And I'd like that to, I'd like to, mm, uh, one of my chronic thoughts is I'm going to die before the thing ends. And what if I get sick and I die, you know, I get some illness and I die in the next six months. Is that enough time to finish the thing off? It might be, but um, my brain is um, somehow stuck and um, I haven't, I haven't uh, finished the thing. And so it's like it's a, pro- my a project of yours. Yeah, 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 yeah. An actual, yeah, project. Yeah. Um, and, uh, you know, I'm, uh, I have a tremendous amount of attachment insecurity. And I think that that's always going to interfere with me having as much satisfaction or I having my, was it the question, my ideal life or my best life or something? Life of your dreams. Life of my dreams. I think that's always going to have an impact on me having the life of my dreams. And that kind of bums me out on the one hand. And on the other hand, I accept that that's just kind of how it is. And I make the most of what's here. At least I, I strive to make the most of what, what's here. So, um, yeah, so 80%. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense to me. That given your relational traumas, there's a mm-hmm. frequent sense of not an ideal emotional state, let alone a relational mm-hmm. state, right? Oh, nicely put, yeah. And um, yeah, that makes that makes makes sense. But 80%, that's doing pretty good. Yeah, pretty good. Yeah, How about a, you? That's a B. That's a um, B. <laughs> Uh, well, so, and you know, you might react, but I think it is slightly influenced by my narcissism. And when I say narcissism, (laughs) I'm saying like, uh, according to my model of personality, we're all on some personality, uh, disorder spectrum, if not multiple. And given our defense mechanisms growing up and, and for me... Um, I'm a, I'm on, I'm a little bit on the narcissism personality spectrum in that I, uh, am pathologically independent. I tend to like my own thoughts. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, I, I definitely have a history of feeling and 
and behaving in a superior manner, um, arrogance manner. Really? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I have never, in our 25 years of knowing one another, felt like you treated me with arrogance or superiority. I've, really? I've never even seen you treat anybody like that. Must be something that happens inside. Wow. That is uh, quite possibly the nicest thing someone ever could have because it's mortifying to me. Oh, I bet it is. To be, to hurt people in that way. Oh, yeah, of um, course. And I think that's your, either our relationship or your generosity or something. But um, there's, I think there's a fair amount of people who would agree close to me that at the very least, I can have bouts of arrogance, particularly when I was younger, mm. but but mm. but currently as well. Um, mm. I'm sure my wife would agree with that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> although she's pretty nice too, so she I don't know if she would admit it in front of my face. But but anyway, my point is is that um, we're all on some spectrum. You know, Bob, you've said you're on the borderline spectrum. Yeah, that's true. Um, I actually have a tiny bit of borderline as well in mm-hmm. terms of trigger, um, but mm-hmm. I would say I'm, I'm more dominantly narcissistic. Um, and the uh, part, the element of that is to tend to look at one's life in a very surface level, a very glowing manner. And so... Um, well, actually, <laughs> no, no, I won't go into it, but <laughs> this is a story from long ago. Well, I guess I'll tell it because, yeah. you know, so this would have been, this would have been right out of graduate school and you, me and, um, our other graduate school friends got together, um, and Nanette and Laura, right? Oh yeah. And we yeah. were at Don, no, at, um, Goldie's on 45th. And we were having a beer, and I said something like, someone asked me about something about my job or something, and I said, oh, my God, it's just amazing. And I don't, I don't think you did, but I think maybe Nanette said something like, everything about you is amazing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, like she was, she was rolling her eyes. She was just like... You know, every, every, and, and I, in that flash of a second, I thought, Ugh. oh, that is kind of about, you know, I do that, you know, and that is sort mm-hmm. of a narcissistic sign trait okay. is to, mm-hmm. to say like, oh my God, that even to talk about one's f- food they ate the other day, to just mm-hmm. be like, oh my God, that food, it was just so amazing. Mm-hmm. It, it's inadvertent, but it comes across to other people as your life is better than other people's lives. Like it's you, you had a better burger than anyone else's burger. And it's sort of self-centered too. You know, it's like that burger was amazing because it was amazing to me. And thus it was amazing. It factually, it's amazing because Mm. I felt it was amazing where other people would be like, well, I know other people have had amazing burger experiences, but I had this really great experience with this burger instead of saying, this is amazing. And I'll never forget that because in that moment, I, I had this moment of reflection. Uh, and after that, I thought, oh, I, I probably do that a lot. You know, someone mm-hmm. noticed that about me and said it. It must be something I'm doing. And, it, you know, anyway. So God, I, did I was a, did I say I can't imagine me saying that. But no, did I? you know, it Nanette. Nanette. It was probably Nanette. Oh, I do know Nanette. Yeah. Yeah. She would have no problem saying that. Right. And Laura, <laughs> Laura is n- nicer than you are, I think. And, <laughs> So, right, so I, I, think it was, I think it was Nanette. Oh, I love Nanette. She's great. Yeah. And so 
part of my perspective on how great my life is, because I, I am living the life of my dreams, to answer mm-hmm. your question, Kathleen. But I've always been living the life of my dreams. Mm-hmm. I mean, part of my journal is that I will read things and it'll say something like, well, I can't really see my life getting any better than this. And in a lot of ways, mm-hmm. I've been really lucky or blessed or worked hard or whatever you want to say, luck is definitely a part of it. I mean, the fact that I didn't get leukemia at the age of 21 and Mm -hmm. the fact that my parents are still alive and still married and still happy together. I mean, my my mom just the other day said that she's never felt as close to my dad as she does right now. Mm -hmm. And so there's all this luck that I just lucked out, you know. And I have not had a lot to complain about. And so I am living the life of my dreams. And because for you, Bob, you know, one of the things that pops in your head is, well, there's this project that I haven't finished that mm-hmm. I feel like I can't, I can't rest until I finish that one thing. I don't have anything like that. There are things that I want to complete, but I don't have anything left undone. There's, and And that's part of... Well, actually, so that leads into the next Kathleen's question. She asks, mm-hmm. what are the three strictest rules you live your life by? So I'll I'll start because I'll just continue, and then we'll get to your answers, Bob. Sure. So one of the rules that I live by is you only live once. Mm-hmm. This is a pretty strict rule that I try to live by, which is that if you're faced with a risk or something that you want to do, but you're afraid of this and that, is... You only live life once. So do you want to live it being afraid and avoiding things? Or do you want to live it being scared out of your mind but doing things? Well, I'd pick the latter. <laughs> uh, I mean, there's a balance, of course. But but you only live life, life once. And, you know, I, starting this podcast has been – this this podcast is just a wonderful thing on a number of levels. One is is it brings you and I closer together. Mm-hmm. It brings me closer together to other people. It, it provides a variety to my career that I wouldn't have otherwise. Um, there would be a certain monotony to my life, I think, if I just was in practice and just just teaching. And I, it's a pro, there's always it's creative. Every episode is is something brand new. I mean, that's one of the things that I kind of lament about teaching is that. I teach I've been teaching the same classes for 20 plus years. Eventually it's it's like it's kind of the same thing. Now I I I love it. I get into it, but it's not challenging the way it was in the beginning. This podcast is challenging every day because I have to make something up new every single time and so Now, why did I start the pot, you know, when I was thinking about starting the podcast, there was a there was a time when I wasn't a podcaster. I was just a regular person that worked my job and observe the internet from a consumer, you know, just passively. And then one day I was just like, what if I started a podcast? And there were all these barriers. I didn't know what to do. I didn't know how to get it done. I had to wrangle other people into it. I might make a fool out of myself and did. Uh, There were just so many different barriers, but I was like, well, you only live life once. And, right, YOLO. And, okay, maybe this is going to fail and it's worthless and it's a waste of time. But 
I'm I want to do it. So it's going to happen. And so I think because of that rule, I tend to feel like anyway I'm living the life of my dreams frequently because if anything is if I want to do anything, I I do it. I don't wait. I don't sit back and say, well, I'll wait till next year. I'll 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 wait till this comes into place. And I'm such a do-it-yourself sort of person that I actually don't like when depending on other people. <laughs> so I'm just like, I'll just do it myself. You know, I'll, I'll do everything myself. I'll figure it out myself. And so that's part of that pathological independence as well, because it's like, why not have other people help? But anyway, the point is, is that that's a rule I live by. Another rule I live by is that I try to make the world a better place. And it's hard to do in our society sometimes, but I try. I really do try. Um, That is a definite rule that I live by is trying to make the world a better place. Like the podcast is making a little bit more money lately. And the first thing that popped in my head is, oh, I get to spread this money around more. (laughs) I get to donate to charities more. I get to have more scholarships. I get to try to, you know, put my little, my little bit of contribution into, into some, good positive change, you know. Uh, I was thinking about maybe even sponsoring people with their business in a developing country or something, just like a business grant of $10,000 mm-hmm. so that they can start their own therapy practice in Brazil or whatever it is, right? And and how gratifying that would that would be for for me personally. Um, and so that, those are my dreams is like how, how to, how to improve the world. And the, the third rule that popped into my head, which I hesitate to say because of judgment from other people Mm. is, um, WWJD. Wait, WW. Yeah. Yeah. What would Jesus do? Mm -hmm. So I don't know how I identify currently, but as a kid, I grew up in a Christian community, in a Christian family. Went to church every Sunday, went to um, a summer camp and this kind of thing. And the Jesus that I grew up with in the 70s was all about love, was, you know, hippie flower power and the whole thing, and was about charity and turning the other cheek and loving your neighbor and not judging other people because you have a plank in your own eye. And you know that line from the Bible? No, I don't. Actually, oh. I don't know. What is it? I can't remember the exact phrase, but it's, you know, how are you pointing out a sliver in someone else's eye when you have a plank in yours? Oh, great. I, I feel like growing up in the 70s, the people that were in my church were like, I don't remember any homophobia. I mean, it might've just been that, um, you know, gay rights was such a distant thing to my community that there wasn't any noticeable opposition, Hmm. but I I don't remember anything like that. Um, the church I went to has since come out as anti-gay on their website. Mm -hmm. It's, it actually says that, (laughs) which is, incredibly sad to me. Hmm. Um, 
and it's not the church I go to. I don't go to any church, but the church that I went to growing up anyway. And so I have this really ingrained part of me from the age of like two years, two, two years old, three years old on of give to other people and forgive other people and compassion. And I, I really, it does inspire me when I think about sort of the vision of at least what I was told Jesus was when I was seven years old. It's this supreme compassion being, like the God, like the Jesus I grew up with was the God of compassion, the God of charity, the God of love, the God of softness, the God of, you want to crap on me? That's okay. You know, it hurts my feelings, but I'm not going to fight back. If if that's what you want to do, then you can, you can hang me on the cross, like, that's you know that's what you're going to do right now and i'm not going to i'm not going to stop you and i when i'm at my best there's a core part of me that goes to that rule cuz there's so many moments in life where you get distracted or you get angry or you get unforgiving or whatever and that's a deep part of me that i go to now, I don't say WWJD to myself. That's not the phrase. But there is, I don't know exactly how I'd put it into words, but it's some kind of phrase along the lines of like, what would the 70s Jesus do? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and and then it, everything is right after that. Like, I, I have complete clarity when I when I remind myself of those lessons I learned when I was seven years old or five years old. So maybe one day I'll describe in full my spirituality, but um, That's pretty let's good. just say it's complicated. <laughs> yeah. Oh, as I was listening to you, I was thinking, just stay with that seven-year-old image of Jesus. You'll be fine. Yeah. Like the only thing, um, religion's just going to mess that up. Right. Yeah. What are your rules that you live by? Um, I'd say chief is uh, kindness and compassion. Not that I am always kind or compassionate. Far from it. (laughs) Um, But um, uh, I believe in that uh, in my heart, in my truest, my deepest heart. I believe compassion and kindness are essential. And without them, I'm probably barking up the wrong tree. If there isn't kindness, if there isn't compassion, then I'm probably on the wrong path thinking the wrong way, thinking, I don't mean right, wrong, like good, bad. I mean, just like this is um, missing. It's flawed. The, this path is flawed See, significantly too, if there's no kindness. So I believe in that. Um, I don't know if I have three. I don't know if I can say that I have three. Um, I believe in evolution. So um, not, not Darwin though, you know, I certainly, yeah, I think that's, that's, that's a fact. That's a fact. Or, you know, evolution in that sense, biologic evolution over time. Well, that's but, what the devil has told you. But yeah, go ahead. Yeah, right, right. Seventies well, Jesus. What does he say? <laughs> <laughs> um, there's this Zen parable that um, I think kind of captures it, and it's this uh, farmer. He's got a horse, and one day the horse hops the fence, gets out of the pen, and runs away, and everybody in town sees that, and they say, "Oh, well, that's bad." And there's this Zen master in town, and she says, well, we'll see. 
And then three days later, the horse comes back and it's got another horse with it. And farmer's got two horses he puts in his pen and everybody in town sees that and says, well, that's good. And the Zen master, she says, well, we'll see. And three days after that, the the farmer's son is is on the new horse. He's breaking the new horse and um, he gets thrown and he breaks his arm. And everybody in town sees that and says, well, that's bad. And the Zen master, she says, well, we'll see. And then three days later, the army sweeps through town and they press all the young men into service, but they leave a boy alone because he's got a broken arm and he can't fight. And everybody in town says, that's good. And the Zen master says, well, we'll see. I I think I'd look at what's happening in the world now, um, the division and the anger and the uh, um, vilifying. And I think it's awful. I it's awful. And I'm really sad about that. Um, but it's not bad because something will come from it and we will see. I believe in that. Hmm. I guess that's all I got to say about value or my rules to live by. Is it a, rule of coping or yeah 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 that the pendulum will swing back that maybe we'll find our place i think i see the best of america in stephen king in the way he writes he he writes um you know he'll set novels in the 50s when people were nice to each other where people would look out for one another i think that's the best of Americans, American culture. And I'm not saying it's exclusive to American culture, but there's a kindness that exists and we have lost sight of it. And I I love that about America, about our culture. I just wish there was more of it. Yeah. Well, it's in Stephen King's world. It was people are nice to each other in the fifties. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. You're right. It's 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 oversimple and um uh, like, my, like the way you... my family members were not treated well no. as Japanese people. They, no. People weren't nice to my family in no, the 50s. No, far from it. No, I'm not trying to say the 50s was a good time. I'm I'm only um saying that uh there's a way that he writes about Americans that um reminds me of our uh capacity for kindness. But we fall short all the time. Um, what white people did to Japanese people in the forties is fucking atrocious. It's not. Yeah. 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 But I like it. I like that story. I, I don't know. It's like, <laughs> it's sort of a meta reaction to it. Cause on one level I want to think, oh, okay, so what the Zen master is saying is, well, what is the Zen master saying? <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. I'm I'm trying to draw this um, concrete moral from that story, right? But of course, and if I did, I'd be like, oh, okay, I get it. So what you're saying is just wait and see because good things will eventually happen. And the Zen master would be like, well, yeah, we'll see. We'll see, we'll see if that's the moral of the story. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, he, oh, okay, so Zen master, you're saying that we should kind of just give up because bad things happen and good things happen. We should just accept 
what's going to happen? Is the master probably say, well, you know, if that's what you're taking away from it, then we'll see. <laughs> yeah. It, it's it's uh, this whole other way of thinking that is not typical, right? Which is, you know, what's the what's the moral of the story? What's right. What do I do with this? What's the right way? Instead of like, well, we'll see. I mean, the the thing I take away from it is release yourself from trying to garner an answer because yes. the pressure to have an answer will sometimes deny reality or cause suffering in and of itself or something. That's fucking brilliant. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I don't think the story is not about being passive. This the story is about um uh releasing myself from attachment to what is and recognizing that um we'll see. Things evolve, things shift and change, but it's not about sitting back and waiting for shit to happen. I believe in social justice and I believe that um we are lazy and complacent a lot of us. Uh uh privileged white people lazy and complacent um and even that makes sense uh though that's not saying i excuse it it's not about excusing it um yeah i'm I'm a little reluctant to talk about this too because it's easy to get very two-dimensional and miss the point of the argument and just be inflammatory but everything that's unfolding is unfolding in exactly the way it is because it must given the things that have come before. So um, I don't have to get too attached to... Um, well, I, I, correct me if I'm wrong, you're, mm-hmm. there's so much depression and demoralization, and I know you got to go because you got to eat yeah. lunch, but mm-hmm. um, there's a, a demoralization that can mm-hmm. set in from what's happening. Yes. And a pessimism and a this is the way things are always going to be and we're doomed and your uh, zen master inside Mm -hmm. of you is saying well we'll see Mm -hmm. we'll see Mm -hmm. it feels it feels bad it feels Mm -hmm. demoralizing it feels like cynicism is the right call but we'll see yeah i think the that attitude helps me not get demoralized you know, that right. I have to wait a while um, for the pendulum to swing. Right. So, I mean, just along those lines, and obviously we don't have time to get into it, but the internet, everyone has a phone in their pocket now. Yeah. The fact, that, you know, in the 50s, for example, and I referred to this in the 70s with gay people, mm-hmm. is that when the oppressed stay silent, Mm -hmm. then the racists and the bigots can also be silent. Mm -hmm. But when the oppressed speak out, Mm -hmm. then the oppressors also have to speak out. Or not have to, but they do. They're provoked to speak out. They're provoked Mm -hmm. to reveal Mm -hmm. their bigotry. Mm -hmm. And right now, it's easy to think we're sliding backwards. Mm-hmm. But statistics in a lot of different arenas, it's hard to know precisely, but in a lot of different arenas, they're heading in the right direction. 
And the things that we're seeing are a provocation that is natural when the oppressed speak out. Mm -hmm. And 20 years ago, or in the 50s, the oppressed didn't have the power to speak out because they would have been literally killed or locked up, or there there wouldn't have been any chance. Now we've gotten to a place where we have the luxury of actually having the ability to speak out. You know, we have a zone in Seattle that doesn't have any police. <laughs> That's quite a shift in in populist power. I don't know what mm. to think of it, honestly, but that couldn't have happened 10 years ago. Mm. And the, uh, the oppressors are going to start, they're going to start saying, revealing what's on their mind. They are. And then the f- cell phones are going to record it, and then they're going to get posted. Yeah. And it looks like, oh, my God, we're going backward. But uh, as far as I can tell, this is, this is evidence of moving forward. When you hear the oppressor getting angry, that's a sign that we're moving forward. When you hear the, the, the oppressors yelling the N-word and mm. uh, having protests in small-town America and pushing around Black Lives Matter protesters— this is evidence that it's working because if it wasn't working, those people wouldn't have to do, wouldn't feel compelled to do what they're doing. They feel compelled because we're winning. They feel compelled because we are, we have the power now. Mm-hmm. The social justice warriors have the power now and they feel it. And so they're coming out, you know, they feel like now that's not a good thing. It, you know, all these things are bad things, but. 20 year, we're old enough to remember, Bob, when the bigots didn't have to do anything. They just had to sit back and allow the systems of power to do its job. Yeah. And that's no longer happening to the degree it was. It's still happening, but it's oh, not yeah. to the degree that it was 20, 30 years ago. And it is a good sign. It's a crappy thing to observe, and it's demoralizing as all hell. But I'm old enough to see the overall data and say that we're definitely heading in the right direction in a number of different areas. In my lifetime, as an Asian American, I experience less racism today than I did when, you know, when I was a kid. You know, people talk, people talk about today, just, and I'll stop because I know you have to eat lunch, but people talk about how there's this uptick in racism against Asian Americans, you know, because of the coronavirus and this kind of thing. And I'm like, that's laughable. <laughs> I mean, yeah, you're catching people on on cell phones, but I'm here to tell you the amount of racism I experienced from zero to 35 was way more than I experienced today. Just way more. The fact that I don't get asked, where are you, where are you from <laughs> As much as I was when I was a kid, that was a constant question. Where are you from? What the fuck you mean? I'm from Issaquah. Issaquah. No, no, no. Where are you from? <laughs> well, my parents, my parents were born in Spokane, Washington. No, no, no. Where are you from? Well, uh, my grandparents were born in in Spokane and in Yakima, Washington. No, no, no. Where are you from? <sighs> I'm half Japanese. Oh, I get it. Okay, that's where you're from. No. Uh. I'm actually from here, from. 
I'm from Washington. I'm more from Wash. I'm more American than you are, asshole. Where <laughs> your grandparents were from Yugoslavia or France or or some other faraway place, and probably not from Washington State. Like yeah, probably not. so, you know, where are you from, white person? You know, anyway. Yeah. So I don't experience that anymore. Among a lot mm. of other things, I, I still experience it. It's mm. it's it's not like it doesn't hurt when I see all the various different races against Asian Americans, but. Mm. You know, I was recently called a chink, you know, just someone called me a, in Ballard, someone called me a chink. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I haven't heard that one in a while. But anyway, so, you know, it's still a thing, but, wow. uh, but it's less. I'm here mm. to tell you. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm quite optimistic about where things are headed. I think uh, I'm not happy. I'm not happy about it. I, I'm just saying that I'm not demoralized, I guess, I guess is the thing. Anyway, you got to eat your lunch because you got to think. I do. Yeah. So, uh, um, wow, this is a hell of a talk. Yeah. I feel like we have to snip it off here. You know, I got to yeah. pinch it off and move pinch on. Pinch it off. Yeah. <laughs> well, that does it for that episode of Psychology in Seattle. Thanks for joining us out there. Please take care of yourself because you deserve it.